All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City. This is the 22nd day of August 2017. I do like to remind you, I'm the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can sign up for that letter. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com. It is a very exciting time for the junior sector, no doubt about it. Novo Resources being one example, but there are many more that we'll be talking to you about in the weeks to come. Um, also, like to encourage you to continue sending along your questions, comments, criticisms, and praises to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. We want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. This week, our sponsors are New Range Gold, RN Resources, Novo Resources, Genesis Metals, Fireweed Zinc, and Osprey Gold Development. I've um, titled today's show, Can China Impact the Fraudulent London Paper Gold Markets? Ronan Manley and Robert Carrington visit for the first time. Michael Oliver returns and be with will be with me momentarily. Well, as the Gold Antitrust Action Committee has proven, the manipulation of the gold price is no longer theory. It is fact. At least in the short term, big banks use the futures markets to deny price discovery for gold bullion, choosing instead to create a virtual market of gold that has little to do with the gold bullion markets. Gold, the metal given to us by God to be used in commerce, is not permitted to get in the way of robber baron bankers who choose to spit in God's face and create their own counterfeit money that they use to rob those who actually produce wealth, like the miners, manufacturers, farmers, and inventors. And the bankers then move their wealth, that wealth into their own pockets, which they use not only for their opulent lifestyle, but to control the body politic. And even as Alan Greenspan admitted, in 1966 in his article, Gold and Economic Freedom. But the truth about the bankers' counterfeit money must be hidden from the masses if the elitist con game and rotten Washington establishment is to continue in power. Yet no matter how much government and those in control seek to hide the truth, there will always be those who dig beneath the surface to find it. One such seeker of truth is research analyst and former Morgan Stanley employee Ronan Manley, and as, as I said, he'll be with me in just a bit, actually, the second half of today's show. Before we say hello to Ronan, I will uh, be also speaking with Robert Carrington, an exploration geologist who heads up New Range Gold Corp. That's a company that has encountered some very high-grade gold intercepts uh, in western Nevada. It is a story I think is well worth paying attention to if you invest in the high-risk, high-return uh, junior gold exploration sector. Well, speaking of the truth, I'm really happy to have with me the always truthful Michael Oliver. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jake. Good to be back. 
Always good to have you. Unfortunately, not very much time today. So I want to ask you very quickly to comment on your major call. The last of these major tectonic turns have finally turned. The one that you've been predicting would turn. Now you have a sell on the S&P 500. Your comments, please. Yeah, uh, I've been watching the stock market in pieces, uh, key sectors, key stocks, uh, NASDAQ 100, S&P 500. And I wanted to see the S&P 500 do something it hasn't done since it's turned up in early 2016. Now, if you recall and go back and look at a chart from that low to the present, there have been a lot of sell-offs, some of them pretty sizable, even more sizable than the one we've just seen from uh, the 2490 down to 2417. Uh, now we're having a sharp rally back up to 2450. But that drop that we just suffered uh, in the S&P did significant damage, major damage, to long-term mm. momentum factors that did not occur in any of the other sell-offs over the last year and a half. Therefore, it's my view that that sell-off is different qualitatively. It indicates the market is indeed wounded severely. Uh, you can have sharp rallies, but I think that the, that the beast is, is in trouble. Uh, and I'm also getting the evidence from you know, key leading stocks like Amazon and Google and so forth. Uh, yes, you'll have fitful rallies. This, this almost always occurs in a trend change. You, you get your primary thrust, and then it tries to say, no, I'm not dead, I'm not dead, you know, and so forth. But I think a trend change has been signaled. I do have some other levels that, are, that are, would add to my conviction, uh, specifically uh, trade down to 2405 on the S&P 500. Anytime this quarter adds to my conviction that we're, we've topped. Now, the issue then becomes, okay, let's say you've topped, which doesn't preclude rallies, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't also tell you what's the nature of the decline. Is it going to be an 87-type event, or is it going to be some more arm-wrestling-type process, which is normal, such as the 2000 top or the 2008 top? The collapse came later in the bear cycle as opposed to early. Um, I'm mixed on that. I'm not sure. But I do think enough damage has been done to where we can now say, okay, U.S. stocks, S&P 500 in particular, uh, is broken, and the bias should now be in a downward zigzag, not an upward zigzag. All right. uh, and I think that enhances uh, some of the other shifts we've seen over the last year or so. Absolutely, and it's uh, it goes with the other tectonic shifts you've talked about. Michael, yeah. with just about a minute left, gold, I know you put out a thing today suggesting, I know you're still very bullish on gold, but you sort of see the uh, the shares outperforming the bullion yet, right? With I 30 seconds, uh, Yes, they've pulled back since last year's highs in terms of relative performance. But it's really a pullback within an uptrend on the, when you examine the spread chart, meaning you measure GDX, for example, versus gold, uh, or XAU index, which has a lot of history, versus gold. That thrust we had last year relative uh, where gold miners outperformed gold was a breakout thrust. And yes, they've pulled back in relative performance since then, but they've stabilized over the last six, seven, eight months. Mm-hmm. But that spread really sort of gone to sleep. And, uh, but, it, but it is in a bull mode, and I think that the next thrust up in gold, and I'm particularly watching the price of 1303 on gold now, if you trade the nearby future at 1303 plus, I mm-hmm. think it's going to really power up. I think at that point the gold miners will ignite more so than will gold. All right, very good. Well, we'll have to leave it go with that, Michael. Thank you so much for being with thank us you, again. Jay. Your comments, comments always appreciated. We'll look to talk to you again next week. Well, folks, uh, don't go away because coming up next, Robert Carrington, the CEO of New Range Gold Corp., will be with us. We'll be back with Robert Carrington.
Orin Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay project located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource outlined by drilling thus far stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Orin is operated by the same team that founded Asanko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. New Range Gold Corps is a Canadian junior explorer focused on its recently acquired flagship Pamlico Gold Project. Located in Nevada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Known as one of Nevada's highest grade gold districts, Pamlico was held by private interests for most of its history and remains largely unexplored. Drilling by New Range is already confirming the legendary grades of the district with intercepts up to 341 grams gold per ton. Well financed with no debt, New Range is unlocking shareholder value at Pamlico and trades under TSX symbol NRG. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm glad to have with me, for the first time, Robert Carrington. He's the president and CEO of New Range Gold Corp. Robert has had uh, more than 30 years of exploration, production, and executive management experience with various junior mining firms. Uh, he is a geologist. Um, he is the former CEO and a director of Gold Canyon Resources and uh, the CEO and founder of Columbian Mines Corporation, which uh, is now the company we're talking about, New Range Gold Corp. As an early explorer in Columbia, his experience was the basis for forming that company's operations down there, and uh, perhaps we'll have a chance to ask him a little about that as well today, but primarily now our focus is on the Pamlico Gold Project in uh, in Nevada in the Walker Lane Gold Trend. Um, New Range Gold Corp. trades in Toronto under the symbol NRG. You can buy it down here in the pink sheets, as I have under the symbol CMBPF, uh, 65.2 million shares outstanding. Recent price, 52 cents Canadian. That's about 41 cents or so in U.S., giving it a market cap of 27 million in U.S. money. So welcome, Robert. I'm so glad you could join me today. Great. Thank you for having us. You know, we've uh, picked up your stock in my newsletter at uh, 23 cents in U.S. money, so we've seen about, you know, it was over a double at one point in time. So the big question that we want to focus on today is, you know, what sort of upside do we have from here? A nice gain so far for my readers, but what about people that are looking at it now? And and clearly you're, uh, you know, 27 million market cap. If you've got something that's significant, that's a, a very, very small market cap. And my thinking is, and the reason I continue to own it, is that there's a lot of upside, so I'd like to I'd like to pursue that with you. Can you talk a little bit about um, what attracted you to the Pamlico Gold Project, and maybe give us a little bit of the history of that project? Well, um, what what clearly attracted me was the uh, the private family that New Range acquired the property from uh, had identified some some very nice high grade uh, uh, shoots 
And uh, while they were looking at it as a very small uh, mining opportunity, uh, when we started looking at the structural geology of the property, it, it looked like it very obviously it was much larger than they were conceiving. Um, the, the history of Pamlico is quite interesting. It was discovered about 1884, fairly late in the, uh, uh, the history of the early gold mining in Nevada, and it rapidly became known as one of Nevada's highest grade uh, uh, gold mining districts. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Pamlico is vastly underexplored relative to most other uh, properties and districts in Nevada, and that's largely because the uh, the entire district has been in private hands since before 1900, and has missed most of the exploration that is common on uh, uh, most other uh, properties and districts throughout the state. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the uh, the opportunity really is much more like we would have seen in the U.S. in the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. than uh, uh, what most people anticipate on uh, on properties today. Mm-hmm. Well, you've uh, staked uh, 111 new claims uh, on June 26. You made that announcement. Right. What did you see that caused you to do that? Um, the uh, uh, the new claims cover uh, some extension of the, uh, the volcanic coasted mineralization, which is our current focus. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, going down the road and as a uh, uh, growth uh, incentive in the future. Um, there's a lot of sediment-hosted mineralization uh, that we've identified in the eastern uh, half of the property. There's a, an extensive series of uh, carbonate platform sediments in some ways similar to uh, the sediments that host many of the other sediment-hosted gold systems throughout mm-hmm. Nevada. Um, we see grades uh, in the uh, carbonate uh, sediments ranging anywhere from a tenth of a gram to a high of about uh, five grams. Mm. And there are some historic mines in the uh, in the carbonates. We started looking at that and staked some claims actually in 2016, and then more here uh, uh, that we announced in June. Started looking at the uh, preliminary geophysical responses we were getting, and it certainly suggests that there's some alteration indicative of mineralization in those carbonate uh, sediments. So we wanted to to get that covered off before we uh, uh, had had new neighbors. We wanted to make sure that uh, since we think this truly is a district-scale play, mm. that we controlled what we thought was the uh, prospective part of the district. What can you tell us about the um, about the structural controls of the gold that you're that you're um, encountering so far? Is is it a vein-hosted system? It is not a vein in the classic sense of a vein. The mm-hmm. Mineralized structures that we're encountering, both in the channel sampling in the decline and in our uh, uh, first uh, phase of drilling that we uh, executed this year, are basically uh, highly mineralized uh, shear zones mm. mm-hmm. with uh, almost no quartz or silica in them. So uh, a lot of the, the quartz veins that you see outcropping on the property really are kind of red herrings and that they don't contain very much, if any, gold. Hmm. And a lot of the uh, the best mineralized structures really don't even outcrop. They they may come up to within a few feet of the surface, but they, uh, uh, they're they typically not outcropping. And uh, an awful lot of this seems to be, uh, uh, or was not uh, understood by the early prospectors, mm-hmm. who, uh, as most uh, small miners do, focused on the veins. So we're looking at a fairly shallow... Uh, target at least to start with is that right we're looking at you, what you've encountered I mean you did some trenching and the trench results were absolutely spectacular and at 1.5 meters uh, the highest I guess the highest reading 104.75 grams per ton 
what did you oh, learn that, from that? And, and yeah, talk about that a little bit. And, and if there's any depth potential for these uh, for these structures, if you know that yet. Well, we don't have enough drilling to really assess the uh, the depth potential uh, for these. I think there is certainly potential uh, uh, for these uh, structures to extend to depth. Um, the uh, uh, that uh, five uh, or the meter and a half of 104 gram mineralization you referred to was actually the socket channel sampling from the decline. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important aspects that uh, came out of that was a uh, uh, seventy foot or a seventy meter intercept of uh, 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 two point nine gram mm. uh, gold. Nice, uh, very nice. And then in our phase one drilling, we drilled a hole perpendicular to the uh, the decline and wound up with a a very similar uh, grade in there. We had uh, seventy. I believe it was uh, 72 meters of uh, two and a half gram. Hmm. Uh, so, and this this entire system is deeply oxidized. So, it uh, metallurgically, we believe it it'll be very simple. the The shallowest intercept we have actually is that uh, 70 meter uh, intercept I just referred to. Uh, the uh, top of that intercept occurs at one and a half meters. That's roughly five feet. <laughs> So and it uh, it continues uh, uninterrupted to uh, uh, seventy two and a half meters. Really good. Um, how much uh, have you been able to to trace the the lateral extent of these structures at this point in time? Well, there, there there's two uh, distinct and very different uh, gold domains on the property. Uh, one is the volcanic hosted gold mineralization. Mm-hmm. And in that particular domain, we see uh, gold mineralization over an area that's approximately 1.5 miles long and a mile and a quarter wide. Hmm. Um, The uh, sediment-hosted gold mineralization, um, we see uh, numbers ranging uh, from uh, a tenth of a gram to five grams over an area that's 3.4 miles long and a third to a half a mile wide. So, so very, very extensive systems with uh, with a lot of gold uh, over a very large area, in in multiple target types and multiple domains that uh, that I think are all going to yield a lot of uh, a lot of very positive results as we get into the details of them. Well, I can tell you the the early some of the early results are really really eye popping. I must say there's a six point one. This is a drill intercept, 6.1 meters, grading 97.94 grams per ton. Another one, 4.6 meters, grading 43.8 grams per ton. What can you tell us about those? Um, those, again, are very much like the sampling and the decline. The, uh, uh, there's no visible quartz in either of those uh, uh, intercepts. Um, as a matter of fact, the geologist on site was having a hard time uh, identifying anything that might be mineralized in any of the drilling. Um, where the only uh, clue to uh, gold mineralization is a, a relatively minor increase in the amount of iron oxide in the rock. And the um, uh, in our holes 8 and 10, which uh, contain some, some of those very good uh, intercepts you were just talking about, we're interpreting that to be part of a uh, an almost east-west trending uh, structural system with some uh, potentially in- very interesting widths. We're doing a lot of modeling right now. I think we'll see this come together uh, as a, a series of 
very high-grade uh, mineralized structures that uh, are parallel or uh, mimic the uh, the regional structure. Um, of course, in the Walker Lane, the regional structure trends northwest, and the Pancake Range Liniment, which I talk about extensively um, in some of the press releases, is an almost east-west trending structure. And so as these two major structural in, uh, systems intersect each other, I think we'll see very large high-grade shoots uh, with uh, uh, structurally controlled mineralization between. Well, Robert, you're talking about a very large target area. Um, how much money do you have in the till, and how far will that take you? We have about $1.5 million in the uh, uh, Treasury now. And we recently completed airborne uh, magnetic and radiometric surveys on the property. That is currently being modeled by a geophysical consultant. Uh, I expect to have results from that in the next uh, three to four weeks. Um, The 22nd of August, we'll start a gravity survey, which is extremely useful for uh, exploring uh, altered sediment uh, Mm -hmm. hosted systems. And that uh, those results will be out about the same time the... uh, mag and radiometric surveys are and then we're planning on starting a uh, large diameter core drilling system or a, a phase in the immediate area of the merit decline and our holes 8 and 10 to assess that and then uh, shortly after that we'll be starting a uh, uh, reverse circulation program to uh, get better definition of the mineralization in and around the uh, uh, merit decline and our holes 8 and 10 we want to try and follow all of that up and grow that uh, as much as we can. Obviously, the, the gold mineralization extends from grassroots to, uh, to depth. We need to figure out what the aerial distribution and the, the vertical distribution of that is. Mm-hmm. And then um, as we uh, uh, move on into completion of that, we will probably uh, step out and drill some of the other uh, targets that we're identifying as we speak. I can imagine uh, after you finish your geophysics uh, the geophysics is that you're starting now, that that will also help you figure out a, a pretty extensive drill program for next year, I imagine, huh? Yeah, well, uh, uh, next year, is there's going to be a lot of drilling on a lot of other parts of the property. Uh, between now and then, on some of the outline targets, we're going to be do, doing extensive uh, uh, backhoe trenching. There are a num- number of pediment areas on the property where there's no outcrop at all, but uh, very well mineralized structures project out into the uh, the pediment area. So I'm optimistic we're going to f- have some real excitement uh, as we start exploring these because the uh, uh, those pediments typically are there because the ro- host rock is more altered and was more easily eroded. So it, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what we get in the backhoe trenching and then the subsequent drilling. Robert, with just about a minute or so left, I have two questions to ask you. One has to do with what are your plans? Do you see your company as an exploration company, or might there be some early exploration or early production, uh, perhaps from the merit zone? And the second question is, uh, you do have a presence in Columbia. Could you just comment briefly on what you expect uh, to do with your Colombian assets? Um, we certainly have the ability to uh, move into early production, although I'm not sure. You know, it, it's going to be data-driven at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're 
we're, we're looking at uh, several possibilities uh, for early production. We have members on our advisory board who have, uh, have built mines, and I've, I've uh, been involved in both underground and open pit production in my, uh, my career, so I uh, know what that's all about. But primarily, we're, uh, uh, we're going to be focused on exploration and growing this um, with the, uh, the goal of getting a uh, uh, compliant resource in the, uh, in the near term. Mm-hmm. As to the Columbian properties, uh, of course, the company was originally founded as Columbia Mines. We were focused on Columbia. Um, we have uh, either sold or dropped all but two of the uh, the two best uh, Columbian properties. One is the Romolito, uh Gold Porphyry System, just south of Medellin, Colombia. Um, we completed eighteen thousand meters of drilling there, and I have a, a consultant reviewing the data right now with the goal of determining whether uh, he, he thinks we can come up with a uh, compliant resource. The uh, the goal there, of course, would be to complete a uh, maiden 43101 resource on that uh, that property. We've conducted large diameter metallurgical tests there, and we get over 92% recovery mm, in okay. a uh, heap leach environment on that. Mm. So it's a, it's a very promising property. The other property we still hold in Colombia is Eldobio. It's a gold-rich polymetallic system where we see surface outcrops to 104 grams. Hmm. We have uh, drill intercepts, um, uh, very high-grade drill intercepts, 8 meters of uh, over 20-gram gold. Um, very, very interesting property. There, uh, geochemically, it looks like there's about a kilometer-long system there, and uh, uh, we see... Uh, intermittent outcrops along that uh, that are buried with uh, overburden in between. So it's a, it's a real exciting uh, property, has a good base metal component. So it, uh, uh, I think that's a, a very interesting property. It's very, very similar to the El Roble mine that uh, Tico Resources All right. currently. We're, we're going to have to leave it go at that. I, it seems like you might seek a, a joint venture partner, perhaps, for the Colombian operations. Pamela. We're looking at uh, joint venturing or uh, some kind of a uh, business agreement on either or both of those properties. Right. Well, this is a very exciting story, Robert, I must say. Pamleco, a plus your assets down in Colombia. Uh, thank you very much for being with us today, and I hope to keep up with you on, on these stories, uh, both from my newsletter and on this radio show in the future. So thank you very much. All right, folks, well, uh, don't, don't go away because um, coming up next, Ronan Manley will be with us to talk about uh, his, some very helpful insights into the gold market, what drives the price of gold. So don't go away. Ronan Manley will be with us. Novo Resources focuses on the exploration and development of gold projects. Its flagship asset is the Beaton's Creek Gold Project in Western Australia, where it is currently upgrading and expanding on its resources to produce an economic study in Q3 2017, followed by construction in Q1 2018. Novo enjoys a strong balance sheet and supportive shareholder support from the likes of Eric Sprott and Newmont Mining. It trades in Canada and the U.S. under the symbols NVO and NSRP. RPF, respectively. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me for the first time Ronan Manley. Ronan is an investment professional and research analyst with an interest in the monetary and gold markets. His career has taken him from Dublin to London, New York, and Frankfurt in roles spanning portfolio management, stock brokering, and technology, working for companies including Dimensional Fund Advisors and Morgan Stanley. Ronan has collected various economic and finance degrees, mostly most recently a master's in finance from London Business School. Ronan's belief is that an understanding of the historic gold markets in the 20th century is one of the keys to understanding the current and future gold market. This leads to a fascination for monetary gold and for researching, analyzing, and writing about the gold markets. In his Bullion Star blog, Ronan attempts, amongst other things, to shine a light on both long-forgotten and contemporary aspects of the global monetary gold market by bringing original material to the attention of readers. And uh, you can follow Ronan uh, at his Bullion Star blog, uh, amongst other places. Thanks for joining me, Ronan. Hi, good afternoon, Jay. Um, Thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad to be here. Really good to have you, and I mentioned your Bullion Star blog. What is there? Are there some other places people can catch up with your work? Yeah, well, I suppose the primary place would be on the Bullion Star website. If you just go to the Bullion Star website, one of the menu options is Bullion Star Research, and under that you will see my blog and blog of a colleague of mine, Kuz Janssen, and a few other blogs which I might touch on during our conversation. Uh, you can also follow the Bullion Star Twitter account. It's at Bullion Star, and you can find that on Twitter. Excellent. Very good. Well, um, you're interested in this gold market. So what, what really, I mean, I just read your, your bio, but what really prompted you to get interested in why the keen interest, because you do a lot of detailed work, and um, as they say, the devil is in the detail. I've always been more of a sort of a, a conceptual guy, but then I don't have the facts to, be, to back up sometimes what I like, uh, what, I, what I believe to be true. Uh, you really dig into the details. What got you so interested in, in this market? Well, I think the first time I really got interested in the precious metals market was around 2002, 2003. It was after the internet boom of 1999, 2000, 2001, which a lot of your listeners may remember. And I was really looking for something else that was moving, a market that was moving at that time. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be the precious metals, gold uh, mining shares, gold and silver mining shares. So really, that was my first introduction to the precious metals market. And at that time, I started reading Jim Sinclair's website, JS Mindset. Mm-hmm. But that really lasted a few years. And then I actually um, forgot about precious metals until around 2011. And I actually just went to a GATA conference that was organized in London. And I found that really professional. And a lot of the attendees were very interesting, and a lot of the speakers. So based on that conference, I decided to go to the Bank of England archives, which are uh, publicly accessible, and to start reading old files about Mm. the Bank of England gold market, Federal Reserve gold, from around the 1960s, 1970s, and I got an interest in that period based on the archive material. Um, 
And then, because I was working in London at the time, um, I took some time off to go back to my home city of Dublin uh, for family reasons. And I started actually working with a company that I was a client of, Goldcore in Dublin, who, who are a gold broker. So I got to know the owners and the guys who run that company, and they asked me to start doing some research for them on a very piecemeal, uh, you know, friendly basis. So after working with them for a while, I renewed my interest in the gold and silver and general precious metals market. And out of that, it led to me uh, starting to work with the current company I work with, Bullion Star in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you, you certainly have done a lot of detailed work. And, and at Bullion Star, you recently published an encyclopedia of sorts of, of gold markets around the world. And why did you consider it necessary to do that? I mean, and, and from what I understand, the gold markets are very, very different in different places. Could you comment on them and, and perhaps tell us a little bit about what some of the better functioning gold markets are and some that aren't so functioning so well? Could you perhaps give us a, a background on some of those as well? Yeah, um, the concept for a gold university, which we at Bullion Star really considered to be uh, equal to a Wikipedia on gold, mm-hmm. uh, it grew out of uh, a realization that there probably wasn't at that time, when we started it in the end of 2015, there wasn't anything out there on the web which would be a portal, a go-to place to find out about gold markets, uh, mints, refineries, gold vaults, central bank, mm-hmm. gold operations. Um, there was quite a lot of disparate information from various years in various different places, but it was quite static and hadn't been updated. So the goal and the target at the time was to create something where anybody, uh, a general reader or even a journalist could go that was writing an article about maybe a gold market or Federal Reserve gold vault um, could go and get some information that they knew was correct and they knew was factual and that they knew had been well researched and had sources material. So if um, your listeners go to the William Star website and again under the research menu and under the drop down they go to the gold university page, uh, the general menu page, they will see that all of the articles on the gold university have footnote sources uh, in a very similar way to Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So um, the first set of uh, articles that came out and were published under Gold University was, was a, a very global, wide-ranging uh, set of articles about the different gold markets of the world. Mm-hmm. There were 21 articles dealing with 25 gold markets around the world. Uh, some of them, for example, some of the smaller ones in Europe and the smaller ones in uh, the Middle East were grouped under a few together. That's why there's 21 articles, but 25 markets. But it spans everything from the London market to New York to Hong Kong, Japan, China, Switzerland, all the big markets, then some smaller markets. Uh, especially in Asia because of our Asia focus in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we have Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, Russia, for example, South Africa. So uh, there's a lot of markets there. And I actually was very surprised that there were so many gold markets out there around the world. Uh, when you read the news and look at financial television, you tend to really only think that maybe there are a few um, gold markets because they're the only ones that mentioned it. 
another large one that uh, I was impressed with was the German gold market. Um, so going back to your question about which ones would I be impressed yes. with as regards that are very well uh, very well run, I actually found that the German gold market was very impressive because it's so large and so deep and there's so many different operators and pieces to that market that I never knew anything about. And I came away after researching and writing about the German gold market thinking that this is probably a great example of of a really large market where the German public really appreciate physical gold ownership because it is such a huge high volume market uh, with so many different banks involved that uh, the only conclusion is that the German public really love physical gold mm-hmm. and it's something that isn't really highlighted probably in the US media or in the uh, London media. Um, so, for example, in, in Germany, you have a huge system of different banks which, um, without exception, all are involved in selling physical gold from the uh, Landesbank, such as Bayern Landesbank, LBBW, down to another large bank called Reichsbank, and then there are Savings Bank, and then Commerce Bank. Um, and then there are quite a lot of specialist uh, precious metals wholesalers and retailers, and they all interact with each other and with the objective of making it as easy as possible for German public to buy gold bars and gold coins, for example. Hmm. Because of the German-speaking um, connection, a lot of these banks are also overlapping and involved in Austria and Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of the Swiss banks and the Swiss gold industry and the Austrian gold industry are also involved in Germany. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of gold refineries as well, so in both Germany and in, um, in um, Switzerland. And then you have the Austrian Mint. So there's this really uh, large ecosystem within those German-speaking markets that I never knew anything about. Mm. And it's nice to find out about it. So that's just one example of information that people could go to the gold university to find out about i see and and it it seems to me that what you've got here then in the german market is a very deep market a very liquid market a market in which it's not just big players with most of the volume but players of all different sizes is that right that's correct yeah Uh, actually last year in february 2016 i attended what's called the world money fair in berlin along with some bullion star colleagues and that is an event uh, which all of the large gold refineries, mints, and wholesalers like Amark or um, Dillon Gage, they all go to every year uh, as a way of meeting their clients and prospective clients. But there's also um, a public part of that uh, event which has money dealers and gold dealers from all over Germany go and they have a boots, exhibition boots. So it was really there I grasped the, the sheer enormity of the German market. Um, you, you'll see it if you look at the World Gold Council demand and supply figures each year um, and under coin and bar demand, you can see that Germany is, is very up there at, at the top of the list, mm-hmm. along with maybe with um, some of the Asian markets. But as regards Europe, uh, Germany and Switzerland would be the two big physical markets. Okay, could you contrast perhaps that German market with the London market? 
because it's my understanding that the London market is a really big paper market, and there are just a, a couple of really major players that are that are involved in futures markets and so forth in the paper markets, and that there isn't that much bullion that gets traded, actually gets moved through the London markets. Do I have that right? And is is that in direct contrast? I take it, it seems to me, that it is in direct contrast with the kind of market you're talking about in Germany. Yes, yes and no. I think in London, it's a wholesale market, and it's run by the LBMA and the large London bullion banks, and in including the Bank of England, but it's very opaque. They tend to downplay the physical aspects of the market. Um, it's very, um, because it's so untransparent, it's very difficult to know exactly what the volume of physical gold that is traded in and out of that market. For example, we know from looking at UK trade statistics that the large bullion banks bring gold into London for storage mm-hmm. that they source from either the refineries in Switzerland sometimes or from... Um, U.S. refineries, maybe they have special deals with the gold mining, um, large gold miners in the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to know what the volume of trades are in, in the London gold market that are to do with real physical gold trading because none of that information is published. Um, so the, the, the London market has a, has a name and a reputation for trading huge amounts of paper gold uh, which it does. Uh, again, you can call that unallocated gold, which is basically claims on a bullion bank. So it's, it's, it's paper claims that are not backed by anything. Um, and I think it's unfortunate in one way that the London market gets this name because it has decided not to be very transparent, so nobody really knows. Um, while at the same time, it, 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 the large bullion banks that have gold uh, storage facilities there, such as HMS, SBC and JP Morgan, they do store a lot of gold on behalf of the ETFs. But at various times, the gold leaves the ETFs and then goes to uh, Swiss refineries to get melted down into smaller bars that go to the Asian market. Um, so uh, as regards the retail aspect of the London market, it, it, it again doesn't really exist to the extent that it exists in Germany, mm-hmm. because it's a wholesale market, it's OTC, it's dominated, as you say, by a few bullion banks. They really don't want to, people to know what's going on there. It's also home of the London gold lending market, where the central banks are lending uh, gold to the bullion banks, which the bullion banks then use for whatever purposes. And again, that is totally opaque. Nobody knows, apart from the people who work in that area, what is going on. And yet, Ronan, it's it's the price that I see quoted every day is the uh, the London AM and PM fix. It seems to be the price that's used, uh, and it's to what extent do you think? I mean, we've had David Jensen on this show talking about it uh, that the massive amount of paper compared to the actual physical gold, the amount of paper that's moved through there in a short period of time exceeds the amount of gold that's mined during the entire year. What's going on? Is this just simply a bet, a casino betting? parlor, essentially, that allows um, the paper markets, the, the, the financial markets to play these games? And to what extent, if any, do you think that it or is masking true price discovery for physical gold? Yeah, that's a great question, because I think this is one of the critical central points for the entire global gold ecosystem and general precious metals market. In London, every day, we can deduct that there are about 6,500 tons of gold 
traded, the equivalent of. This is based on uh, looking at clearing statistics for, for uh, gold trades that are cleared by what's called London Precious Metals Clearing Limited, LPMCL, which is uh, basically a sister organization of the LBMA made up of HSBC, UBS, uh, JP Morgan, Scotia, banks like that. Mm -hmm. um, um, it, it would, it's inconceivable and impossible to uh, explain this sheer volume of gold that's traded other than the fact that it isn't gold. It's actually yeah. just paper securities being traded, uh, spot forwards and options um, between uh, huge volume transactions between the bullion banks and the brokers and their clients. Um, but as you say, the international gold price is derived or discovered in London, unfortunately, and a lot of all the all of the other markets around the world inherit that price. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Bloomberg or Reuters and you look at the ticker on a CNBC, you will see the price changing maybe one one thousand two hundred and eighty dollars. But it, nobody really stops and thinks, where does that price come from? But a few financial academics. Um, quite recently, including a guy called Professor Brian Lucy at Trinity College in Dublin. They have a very specific interest in the empirical research into gold price discovery. And they came out with a very interesting study saying that the gold price is predominantly, if not exclusively, discovered by both the London OTC gold market and COMEX. And so what you have is you have this very opaque, closed, um, group of banks that are deriving the gold price. Um, and again, another thing that supports that is the LBMA gold price fix, which you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. That again is controlled by the LBMA. They don't let anybody uh, to be direct participants in, in that, those auctions, apart from the, um, the, the member bullion banks of the LBMA. Mm -hmm. And what they trade is unallocated gold. They don't even trade physical gold. So. They they really just trade positions between each other, which are credits, unallocated credits. Then, if people really wanted to take delivery of physical gold, that's a totally different step where you'd have to go to a bullion bank with your claim and say, I want to convert my claim into allocated gold. So, again, the same banks are involved in COMEX, which, as you know, doesn't have much gold behind it either in, in the COMEX proved vault. So, so really there's this system in London and New York which dominates price discovery, but it's all based on paper trading of assets. Because, as you say, over 6,500 tons of gold are traded each day in London, yeah. but there's only about that amount in the whole of the London gold bolting system. Um, about three weeks ago, the LBMA for the first time decided that they would publish uh, a figure every month saying how much gold is held in all the London vaults, which includes the Bank of England, HSBC, uh, JP Morgan. But there are only about 7,500 tons in the whole London vault mm. system. Over 5,000 tons of that is held by central banks, another 1,500 tons of ETFs. So that leaves very little gold that's not owned by a central bank or an ETF, um, maybe less than 1,000 tons. So you got um, what would you? You got more gold traded every year, as you said, 
um, in the history of the was mined in the history of the world, with only less than a thousand tons to back that up. <laughs> yeah. So, in your view, is this putting downward pressure on gold? Let's say, if we looked at the amount of especially since 2008-2009 financial crisis, there's been an explosion in terms of the amount of money created by central banks. Is it your understanding that the price of gold, and certainly, I mean, it's the amount of gold that's mined is something like 2% a year. It grows, the, the supply of gold grows something like that. It, it yeah. can't grow very fast. And yet, you know, during the financial crisis, we saw an explosion of gold in terms of the, I mean, a, an explosion of, of paper money dollars and other currencies created out of nothing, the gold price hasn't kept up with that, has it? No. I really think, and um, some colleagues of mine in Bullingstar agree, that currently the international gold price that is being derived and discovered isn't really reflecting the physical gold market whatsoever. The physical transactions are buried as a minuscule fraction within the overall paper gold trading system. And they inherit the price from both London OTC and COMEX. Right. And as you said, um, the global money supply uh, figures have expanded rapidly, while at the same time the physical uh, above-ground gold supplies are only increasing, as they always did, at a very slow rate. Um, we did a study, which is on the Bullion Star website, under the, our Bullion Star blog brand, um, and it's in a article titled Gold Price 65,000. It's a slightly sensational title, but it's really just aimed to show the fact that if the gold price was being derived based on um, a connection with global money supply, it would have to be a lot higher. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, back until the uh, late 60s, even the US dollar was backed by gold, partially backed by gold. so that was an anchor on the system. Uh, gold acted as a way of uh, ensuring that the um, money supply could, there was a convertibility aspect between the money supply and gold. But now there's no convertibility. But if there was even a partial convertibility again, the gold price would have to be a lot higher. Like for example, the US M3 money supply is currently around 18 trillion trillion. If that was 40% backed by the gold that the U.S. Treasury claims to hold, which is, you know, 8,100 tons, the gold price would have to be about $28,000. Um, and with global money supply is around $85 trillion, And um, all the gold held by central banks, which is around, claimed to be 33000 If If that was um, backing the the global money supply, the gold price would have to be over $80,000. So these are just estimates, but they're not meant to be accurate. So they're just meant to be able to show that if there was a relationship between gold and money supply, the gold price would have to be a lot higher. The reason that it's not suggests that this paper trading is during the gold price. Uh, Also because a lot of, say, institutional investors or hedge fund investors if there was no paper gold market, their demand for gold would actually go in and flow into the gold price. But the existence of the paper markets uh, tends to channel the demand that would have gone into the physical market away from the physical market. <laughs> so you could you could look at it as an analogy of a, a dam. It's damming the the, the, the volume of water isn't isn't flowing downstream. Yeah, as so, it should do. 
So the so the financial markets, uh, these people that are buying paper gold, in their minds, they think they own the real thing. They don't care if they own the they really want to own it. They just want to have the security of it, I suppose, or they, they their portfolios are are hedged because gold tends to go against other assets. I suppose there's some reason or logic for them wanting to own it, but they don't connect it with as a money, do they? They don't think of it as gold as money. They think of it as just another commodity that that sort of protects their wealth, I suppose. Um, Ronan, with just a couple of minutes left here, in your view, what could break this dam? What could cause these people that own paper gold and are so confident that they're protected by it, what could cause them to change their mind and say, "Uh uh-uh, I want the real thing? We've actually thought about that question quite a lot of William Star when we were writing articles. There's another one on that same part of the website called What Determines Gold Price, Paper or Physical? And really, it would be a trigger of some sort. We're not sure what the trigger would be, but it would be at the margin where a percentage of people who currently invest in paper gold um, and are happy to do that to get exposure to the US dollar gold price, if some percentage of those people decided that they want to convert their claims into real gold. Either they want to convert unallocated gold positions with the London Bullion Bank into real gold or convert gold futures on COMEX into real gold. If a certain critical mass of people decided to do that and realized that they can't do that, that could create a panic in which mm-hmm. either this cash settlement of these instruments or else people want to sell these instruments to raise the cash to try and then buy physical gold. So that would be a, a sort of um, a factor that, 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 that theoretically would cause um, a change in sentiment. But another aspect to that is the fact that uh, what we have over the last 10, 15 years is akin to a silent bank run where a lot of gold is flowing east, a lot of physical gold is flowing east from the Western markets and from the London vaults, even Bank of England vault. And it, it's going through Swiss refineries, converted into kilobars, and it's going to India and China. Uh, a lot of that gold will never come back because of the rules of the Chinese market and also the fact that the Indian population love gold, physical gold, and they would not tend to want to get um, that paper gold. Yeah. yeah. Uh, believe so, they're being, uh, the Indians, I believe, are being indoctrinated to try to get them to use paper gold. Obviously, if you can create money out of nothing like the banks do, if, uh, counterfeit money, essentially, wouldn't it be in your interest to try to keep people disinterested in from, from owning the real thing? And isn't that perhaps what's going on either consciously or unconsciously by the bullion banks that are, that are suppressing the gold price through this massive paper scheme? Yeah, I think so. I think... A lot of, even in universities, in financial courses for the last 20, 30 years, nobody studies um, what the international monetary system was during the Bretton Woods era. Mm-hmm. Nobody understands the connection, or very few people understand the connection between money and gold. And a lot, so for example, in every MBA school around the world, nobody thinks about or studies gold as money. Mm-hmm. It isn't on the curriculum anymore. So you have people now who are reaching the highest positions in all the investment houses and financial companies, banks around the world, and they just don't know. They just have never thought about it. It's probably only older people that were in the workplace in the 1960s, 1970s remember that, such as Jim Sinclair, for example. Yeah, we're just basically out of time here, Ronan. It's been a pleasure having you. I didn't get to half the questions. You started to touch on one here, uh, the movement of gold to China. China 
India, Russia, those are all topics I'd like to hear you talk more about. Uh, do you think perhaps you can come back sometime in the future and, and address some of those topics? Sure, definitely. I'd love to. Um, um, I'd love to have, uh, continue our conversation. Yeah, what, what impact they might have in, in China and the physical gold being taken away from the West at a time when, as you say, people that have been educated in their MBAs and their PhDs and so forth have no understanding of, of gold and why it was money. And at some point in time, my belief is they're going to be sorry. They're going to want to own gold at some point in time. And it's all about confidence. And when the confidence in the current fiat monetary system comes tumbling down, as even Alan Greenspan predicts it will, there's going to be sorrow in Mudville, as they say. There's going to be a lot of people that wish they had heard what Ronan Manley had to say and others. But I hope that you'll come back, come back with us sometime in the near future so we can address some of these other topics. I mean, primarily the one I wanted to get to and we just didn't today is China and what that might mean and the gold that's moving there and they don't let it out of China. It's just a one-way trek. Gold into China, gold mined in China, it doesn't go anywhere except perhaps uh, in the New Silk Road among the, the comp countries that are trading and competing against the fiat dollar. So anyway, these are topics I hope we can address with you sometime in the future. Ronan, thank you so much for being with us and I look to do it again sometime in the near future. Thank you very much, Jay. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, my main guest will be F. William Engdahl, who will talk about the geopolitical situation in India and how that may figure into the gold and other financial markets. Also, Brian Groves of Genesis Metals will join me, and hopefully Michael Oliver will be back with us once again. Until then, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 